Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Have your Bibles or your device, whatever it is you do. (laughs) Yeah. James, book of James. Starting a new study this morning. The author of the book before us in this one we refer to as the book of James happens to be one of the sons of a couple by the name of Mary and Joseph, which means his older brother, his half-brother, is Jesus, right? Just Can we just for, for, for a second let our imaginations run wild for a moment? Can you imagine growing up in that household? How would you like to have Jesus as your older brother? Can you imagine Mary going up to James and saying, why can't you be like your brother Jesus? (laughs) Don't know that that happened, but that's how my mind works anyway. (laughs) Just imagining that. This much we do know, however, from the gospel account, Jesus' brothers did not believe on him. So we know that James is one of those brothers. Jude is another brother who both are gospel writers. They did not believe that on him until after the resurrection. It was until then, after that event, that even for them, his brothers, his family, the event of the resurrection, irrefutable undeniable that he was indeed the Messiah, the promised one, the the Son of God. In fact, James so believed, so convinced, he went on to become a leader in the early church there in Jerusalem. So he's no longer confused about who his brother is. He knows. Now, that being said, it's interesting as we study this book that we're going to see James makes reference to the Old Testament 45 different times. That's quite a few, I think, in a relatively short letter. 45 times he refers to the Old Testament. Now, the reason I mention that is because not only is he related to the living word, but he's pretty well connected to the written word. He's convinced about the truth contained within it. Many people today are confused about the realities of the Christian faith. Have you found that to be true? Have you had a conversation recently with someone and it's like, where did you, what, how did you ever come up with that <laughs> kind of thing? They're confused. What they believe is based on what they think they may have learned when they were kids back in Sunday school or what they think the Bible says or what they've been told what God is like or what they've heard what we're supposed to believe. But their view of spiritual things rather inconsistent, ill-informed, to say the least. The Bible tells what the Christian life is all about, right? It tells us what God is like, what he expects of us, how we are to live, what we are to do, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
We see this all throughout Scripture from cover to cover in our Bibles. And it is really, really clear, really, really seen in this book called James. The Christian life is seen really kind of like you could say in a nutshell within these few chapters. James begins with the, what I'm going to refer to as a reality check for believers as he starts this letter off. There are two ways that we, one can look at the world. You know this. One is through the, the eyes of unbelief, that the world is a random, meaningless, chaotic mess. <laughs> the other is through the eyes of faith, that God is actually in control. And that he has the power to work things out for his good and is doing that. The first view might seem to be true. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that we live in a world that is a mess and it's full of chaos, right? So that first view might seem to be true. It may appear to be real, but that's not really the way the world actually is. You see, we live in a world that was created by a loving God. Amen? In spite of our rebellion, in spite of who we are, it was redeemed. We have been redeemed. This world has been redeemed by a loving God. Ultimately, it is going to be completely restored by a loving God. Yeah. That's something to be excited about, isn't it? God is in control. You could say he's got this. And James wanted to make sure that his audience understood that very truth. Because they were going through some difficult, tough times. They really were. This letter was written to, the, to Jewish Christians who had become scattered throughout the Mediterranean world at that time because of a thing called persecution. Many of them were suffering mistreatment at the hands of not only government authorities, but also religious leaders. And James begins by helping them put their situation into proper perspective. He's wanting them to make sure that they're not walking around and being burdened and, and brought down with a worldly perspective, but a heavenly perspective, because there is a difference between the two, and one makes all the difference in the world in, in terms of how we're going to live in this world. So let's pick it up at verse 1. James's introduction in his letter here, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. James was known as a tremendous man of humility, and we see that right off the bat. And here's what I mean by that is, you see, he could have... Um, he could have pulled rank here. He could have name dropped. He could have said, this is James, the brother of Jesus. So you better, you better pay attention. You better listen. Give me the respect, you know, kind of. But he doesn't do any of that. He just simply says, James, the servant. I like that. And we see the humility 
in that. Then he says to the 12 tribes. This is a reference to, as, to the Jewish people who, as I've already just recently said, scattered throughout the known world at that time, who had become believers in Jesus. Jewish folks who had, been, had come out of Judaism and they believed that Jesus was indeed, is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. They have placed their trust and their faith in him. And it's costing them because of their faith in him. James greets these struggling believers with a single word. He just simply says greetings. But it's an interesting word, this word he uses. Even though it is a common official greeting at the time, the Greek word literally means to rejoice. We read it as greeting, but in the original language, it literally means to rejoice. And so it's kind of like James is saying, hey, joy to you. They're struggling. <laughs> they're, they're scattered. Some, as we're going to talk more about, homeless hurting. And James in his greeting says, rejoice, joy to you, which is very, very interesting when you look at the very next verse. <laughs> look at verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Hey, joy to you. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> consider it joy whenever you find yourself in hardship. I like that. After James's intro in verse 1, he makes a statement that initially could be very much understood, especially in our time and in our day. Would you agree with that? Can you imagine? Try to, try to imagine that you are not a believer. You don't know anything about Scripture, nothing about God's ways, and you read that. You're going to think, huh, this, this is nonsense. This is just utter craziness. But he says, makes the statement. Now, throughout this passage that we're going to be looking at, this first half of chapter 1, there are, James provides for us three reality checks. I want us to pay attention to them today. These are things that the first century Christians needed so desperately to be aware of, just like we do today. Because I think this book is very, very um, relative and very timely for us in the times in which we are living. So reality check number one is this. Problems don't have to be joy robbers. There's something in us, in our society, that thinks, oh, this is bad. And we allow it to take us to places that it doesn't need to take us, right? We do, oftentimes, if we would be honest, allow a difficult circumstance to rob us of our joy that we are to have and maintain and walk in and live in throughout our days, throughout our lives. Now, here's interesting. The Greek word for both trial and temptation is one word. They, one word refers to trial. This very same Greek word often then gets translated as temptation. They're the same. So in other words, you see what God will send or allow as a trial, 
to strengthen our faith, Satan will seek to exploit to get us to sin. Are you with me? On the other hand, what Satan throws our way as a temptation, God allows to be a trial. Satan wants to use the situation to bring us down, to tear us down, and wipe us out. God wants to use the same circumstance, the same situation, to show us just how faithful he really is and how real he can be in our lives and in those situations. In other words, it's an opportunity for joy. <laughs> we see it as, oh no, and we grumble, and we complain, and we gripe, and we whine, right? Because we've been taught that that's what you're supposed to do. When an unfortunate something or other comes our way, comes knocking on our door, James says, no, 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 no. That is how the world should be acting because they don't have Jesus. But that is not how it is to be for those who are in Christ. We then are to have heaven's perspective and we are to see it as an opportunity to choose joy instead of it being a downer in our lives. So it's an opportunity for joy. What does that really mean then? You see, James isn't talking about pretending that nothing is bothering you. He's talking about having a realistic, practical, down-to-earth, bottom-line perspective of your problems. When a trial comes your way, the enemy will be there at that same moment, right? Have you found that to be true? <laughs> isn't, isn't it interesting how he just sort of seems to just show up at those times? He'll be there to try to get you to do what Mrs. Job tried to get her hubby to do. You guys remember that? Job chapter 2, verse 9. They've encountered a, a rough day <laughs> or a few days. They've lost everything. Now, you wives don't get mad at me, but I've often considered it kind of interesting that, you know, God allows Job to lose everything except his wife, <laughs> who is about to tell him in chapter 2, verse 9, Job, so she's very, very, encouraged, very encouraging. Why don't you just curse God and die? <laughs> but you know what? God will be there as well. Satan shows up doing his thing, right? But God is there as well, waiting to show you his strength and seeing you through whatever it is you're having to go through. Your problems really can work in your favor. Now, that's a whole different kind of way of thinking, isn't it? They really can work in your favor. They truly can be a benefit to you. How? Well, let's read on, verse 3 and 4. Because you know that the testing of your faith 
produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, it was mentioned a couple of weeks ago how Jesus sees the potential in every single one of us. He sees the person that you can become. You guys remember that? Those of you who were here, James is saying here that when you go through problems, you become better. You become stronger. You become courageous. And you become more capable of being and doing everything that God has called you to be and do. This is why they can be a benefit, church. They make your life better in the long run. If you're willing to hang in there and not give up. There's one view of reality that says problems are bad and should be avoided at all costs. But James gives us a reality check here. He says that problems can work for you. They can benefit your life if you'll let them by your trusting God through them. The key principle here is the endurance the perseverance, an attitude that says, I will not quit no matter how tough things get. Every person in this room is familiar with problems, right? Every single one of us know about problems. Every single one of us have problems to some degree or another. And you have three ways of dealing with them. Every single one of us do. You can run and hide from them as if that's going to do any good. You can whine and grumble about them, as I mentioned earlier, or you can stand firm, courageous, and strong. And with God's help and through His grace, work your way through them. Maturity only comes, church, through the testing of our faith. Amen. And faith is made pure only when fiery trials burn away the dross and the junk and the whatever you want to call it of unbelief in our lives. The second reality check would be this. Never forget that you are never alone. There's one view of the world that says you have to fight your own fights. You have to solve your own problems. You have to make your own decisions. You have to make your own way. You have to take care of yourself. The biblical, biblical view is a little different. <laughs> it reminds us that even though we have responsibilities to fulfill, we're not on our own. And we're not all alone. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. What an incredible promise. Would you agree with that? If you need wisdom, God will give it. Anybody here in need of wisdom? 
Both hands go up, right? When you think about it, you see that wisdom is the solution to just about all of our problems. When you stop and think about it. Wisdom will not only get you out of a jam, but wisdom will help you stay out of one in the first place, right? It'll keep you from getting into a jam. God says he'll give you wisdom. He'll tell you what you need to know when you need to know it. In order for you to move through life in him, through him successfully. Now, there will be times. You guys have been here, done this. When, when you'll think that you need more money or more time or more resources or more people or less people. <laughs> or more talent, or more whatever, you fill in the blank. But what you really need, James is saying, is wisdom to maximize your current situation. Where, you, where do you get this? Well, not from your own brilliance. <laughs> James lets us know it is a gift from God, and that all we got to do is ask for it. You need wisdom, church, more than you need anything else. Please hear that and let that enter into your hearts. In fact, if you want to know more about what the Bible has to say about wisdom, I'd encourage you to read the book of Proverbs because that is what it is about for 30 chapters. James writes, go with me now to verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Don't you love that? Did you just hear what that said? Believers in humble circumstances, the needy, the poor, ought to take pride in their high position. We're talking heaven's perspective here. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. You know what James is saying here? He's saying don't put stock in your own resources. If you are poor, don't look at that. James says, look to God because he will provide for you. But then he says, if you are rich, don't be impressed with yourself. <laughs> don't pat yourself on the back for that. Your money means nothing in light of eternity. He's saying whether you have a little or a lot, you don't live by your own resources. Either way, it's level ground. Do you see this? Poor or rich. What matters is our depending upon the resources of God. The Jewish Christians to whom James is writing would be well aware of their history and their past, well aware of an enemy that posed a threat to the people of God throughout their history, led by giants like Goliath, the Philistines hassled the Jews continually 
In our day, we don't fear Philistines, right? But it seems that, in many cases, finances bring us into as many trials and tests and hassle us just like those Philistines did to the Israelites back when. Whether individually or as a church, family, corporately, finances can be likened to the Philistines that stomps and threatens continually within our lives. Knowing this, James reminds us that regardless of our financial situation on earth, we're exalted. He says we're elevated above the world system because we are a part of a kingdom whose streets are paved with what? Gold. So whether we're worried about poverty or weighed down with riches, we can be absolutely free if we keep a heavenly perspective which means acknowledging that you are not in this by yourself. You don't have to get through life on the strength of your own wisdom, your own wit, or your own charming personality. <laughs> For those of you who think you have that. <laughs> if you need wisdom, James says, reminds us, ask God, and he will give it to you. All you have to do is ask. I purposely passed verses 6 through 8. Let's go back to them now. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Not in some of what they do, in all that they do. Now, here's something interesting. The word double-minded literally means two-souled, like two hearts, two spirit, two-souled. That's what the word means. It appears here in the book of James for the first time, not only in God's word, but here's something interesting. It appears for the first time in Greek literature. Nowhere previously is it found, this word. Scholars suggest then that it could possibly be a word that James has invented himself. <laughs> interesting, right? Now, so if you invent a word, you get to define it, right? <laughs> So let's let James define it for us. Interestingly enough, he uses the term once again in chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It indicates an impurity of our inner person, where there should be one thought one goal, one attitude or devotion, we find two competing thoughts taking place within us. So a double-minded person is one who wants his or her will and yet at the same time wanting God's will. 
That's the double-minded Christian. Yes, part of us wants to live in God's will, but the other part wants it on our terms, right? I know none of you do that. <laughs> I just <laughs> looked at your faces like, what are you talking about, Dave? I don't know nothing about what you're talking about. Wanting it on our terms. And when a trial comes, at that point, we are, our tendency is to refuse to release our grip and trust that the purpose and plan of God and whatever he's allowing to take place in our lives will actually be a benefit and bring true freedom to our lives. That means we must put all our faith, all of our hope, all of our trust in him. Look at verse 12 with me now. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When you face trials, when you face temptations, if you stay close to the Lord, your eyes on him, you will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you will receive, James says, the crown of life specifically reserved for those who don't walk away from him during those times of trial and temptation. Now, obviously, that part there is, is in the context of future crown of life, something that is in our future that we will receive when we are joined with him in eternity. But I also believe there is added reward and blessing for the here and now that James is referring to and speaking about. Every follower of Christ who, is, who perseveres through trial and temptation is rewarded in this life with what? Maturity and wisdom. That's what he's been talking about. Maturity and wisdom and insight into God's purposeful plan. Now, folks, as far as I'm concerned, that's real life at its best. Can you say amen to that? Now, remember that you're not in this by yourself. God is with you. Reality check number three. God is not against you. He is for you. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Spiritual death for sure, possibly even physical death. James pointed this out because he wanted believers to understand that God wasn't trying to trip them up. They were going through persecution, trials, financial hardship, homelessness. And in addition to that, they were like all followers of Christ, struggling with temptation to sin. And in their case, Probably the biggest trial would have been, do I desert the faith? 
do I go back to the world where life would be a little bit easier and I don't have to deal with people coming at me because of my faith in Jesus Christ? Tempted. Regarding the entire arena of trials and temptations, understand this, church. God will allow trial. Satan will come with a temptation. There is a difference. Temptation happens to be a fact of life. Every single one of us deal with it. We all go through it. But we need to understand that God is not the one orchestrating it. He's not trying to set you up for some kind of crash and fall. He wants what's best for you. He's on your side. Do you know who isn't on your side? There's someone out there who isn't working toward what is best in your life. This person is working toward what is ultimately worse for you in your life. Who is it? Let's look at that verse again. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. Hmm. It's you. It's me. The unfortunate truth and issue of mankind is that we are our own worst enemy. Yeah. We seek what we most want, but not what we most need. Therefore, we are, check this out now, not wise, but foolish. Not building our own lives in Christ and one another in the faith, but self destructing instead when we want it our way instead of his God is not the cause of the sin in your life you are God's not trying to trip you up he's not waiting for you to fall he's waiting for you to follow through with him and his word Referring once again to verse 12, God blesses the people who patiently endure testing, who hang in there, trusting him along the way. God doesn't send the tests your way. They are just part of the human experience. In fact, the Bible says that God's involvement in this process is, is actually that he prevents them from becoming even worse or too strong for you. We saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. Chapter 10, verse 13. So, you can't blame God. What you just did, though, and you didn't blame God, but did you, when I asked the question, who is it, did you see what you did? You played the blame game. You didn't blame you. You blamed the enemy. Now, and he has a part in it. We're not denying that. Of course he does. But in context, <laughs> you, 
this is exactly what you did. I kind of set you up for that. I apologize. <laughs> Just seeing if you were watching and paying attention as we were reading Scripture as to what it said. You can't blame God for your problems and temptations. You can, however, thank Him that they're not worse than what they are. Amen? You're going to have all kinds of problems and trials and tests and temptations in your life. And your tendency might be to say something like, really, God, really, this is what you're going to do now to me? And God will come back and say, I haven't done this to you. <laughs> you have done this to you. He's not doing it to you. These things are a fact of life. God isn't out to get you. He's out to bless you. Amen. Never, ever be mistaken on this point. The trial of our faith is to prove the faithfulness of our God. Let me say that again. I know most, some of you don't take notes, but everyone should be writing that down somewhere because you're going to need that in a day or two, maybe even before this day is over. You're going to need that truth. The trial of our faith is to prove the faithfulness of our God. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Generally speaking, we associate gifts with good things, don't we? Yeah, you hear the word gift, you think, oh boy, birthday gift, Christmas gift. I always think when I hear the word gift, I think of Dave Higuera. <laughs> Maybe, perhaps I've told this story before. He knows what I'm about to say. Years ago, we're all at his house and we're visiting, and he had his head on the table like he wasn't in a, you know, feeling very well. And, and then he moaned out, I, I don't feel very good. I think I need gifts. <laughs> And, you know, James is certainly, you know, good gifts, good things certainly applies here. And he's, he's not ruling that out. I'm not ruling that out. But I think that's not all he's talking about here. We can't forget what the context of this passage has been. It's been trial and temptation, persevering through all of those things. And so James is, what's he saying? When he began, began this letter, is counted all joy. My dear brothers and sisters, he is saying here that that good gift is that trial and that temptation. Because if you will hang in there and not yield, but trust God and allow his strength to come and get you through, you become better and stronger, more mature, firm in the faith. And more like Jesus. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot think of a better gift than that. Everything you really need to make you more like Jesus is what James has been talking about in these first 18 verses. And that should be, for all of us, a cause for joy. Yeah. Everything that is good in your life, both good gifts and good gifts, <laughs> have come to you because of God's goodness and faithfulness and his grace. Because he is for you. Because he loves you. Even though life is hard, temptation is strong, and problems are many, God wants you to know the reality of his presence in your life. I want to encourage you that as often as is necessary, you give yourself a reality check. Remind yourself that you belong to God and that he is for you. And that he is in control. And he will do great and mighty things in and through your life. If we will just trust him. No longer be double-minded. Single-minded, right? Our minds on him. Our hearts, our eyes on him. Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you for this letter. The book of James that we have in our New Testament Bible. It has been said that there was once a, a time when the canon was being discussed and decided that there was actually conversation that James, the book of James would not be part of that. I'm glad <laughs> that it is. For it speaks volumes to us in that which we need to know that we need to apply, that we need to live out in these days as followers of Jesus Christ. May we take these words to heart. May we have the resolve in our hearts to not be too sold, to not be double-minded, but sold out to you, Lord. Wanting your will and nothing but following you, trusting you all along the way. Knowing that you are in control and that you've got this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.